If you would, turn to, in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 2. We're continuing our study in this enlightening book. And I am going to be preaching from chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, but I'm going to begin in verse 4, where Devin started last week, because the two are connected. They are united together. So Peter writes in verse 4, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, we ask that you would make your word enlightened to every person here. May they see the glory of God in these words. And may they experience the grace of God as you speak in Christ's name. Amen. Back in the early 70s, when I lived in the area, I was dating a girl. I lived in Silver Spring, Maryland, and she lived in Gaithersburg. And I would regularly drive back and forth on what back then was a very rural road called Muncaster Mill Road and Snoffer School Road, where About 90% of what you see there today did not exist. And I would drive back and forth, and usually after dropping her off at midnight, a little after, I would drive home back to Silver Spring. And on one occasion, I arrived in my driveway, and as I turned the car off, this panic hit me. I did not know how I got there wasn't drinking, 
wasn't using drugs. I just didn't remember the drive home. I'd been doing it for over a year. And it had been, become so familiar to me, I didn't remember stopping at stoplights. I didn't remember turning. I didn't, I didn't remember a thing other than sitting in my driveway wondering how I got there. It, it amazed me how the familiar could become so forgetful. Peter has written this letter because very much the same thing has happened to these men and women in these churches in Asia Minor. In the midst of 30 years of following after Christ, in the midst of living for God, now in the midst of hostility and opposition to their faith in Christ as they try to follow him, these folks have apparently forgotten the gospel that brought them to where they are. Now, this is Peter's correspondence to these people, but obviously Peter is aware of what is going on, and most likely they were corresponding with him. He is hearing about what is happening, and, and he makes an assessment. He assesses their situation. He evaluates what is happening and how they are responding, because he's aware that, that it seems as though they are shrinking back from their faith. They are not quite standing as firm as they used to because of the hostilities they are facing. And so he writes this letter and he writes this letter to remind them of the familiar. He begins his letter with an unusual description of who they are, who these readers are, by calling them first and foremost elect Exiles in, in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, the churches that are dispersed throughout Asia Minor. Now, calling them exiles is, is unusual because they're not characterized as traditional exiles, but they are in Peter's mind, exiled from the world they once used to live in as unbelievers. But calling them elect, that is what is necessary. Peter writes to them because this, of this growing hostility against them as, as the Christian community, and, and they need encouragement, and they, they need to be reminded of what is true. And so that is why Peter writes, and what is true, he tells them out the, at the outset, is that, is that they are God's people. They are elect. God has saved them through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. The word, the word elect here has rich, rich meaning. It succinctly represents all that God has done for them in Jesus Christ. And their trial, as Peter tells us, is actually, it is not unexpected. What they are experiencing as Christians is, is something actually they should be anticipating. He writes in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, 
passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter's saying, hey, this, this is what the Gentiles do. This is the world you came from. This is who you were. And he goes on to say, with respect to these things, to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you for not doing it. That's what these people are facing. The world they came out of. The world that, that they, they were once very much a part of and loved. The lifestyle they lived that was in grand opposition to God and his holy ways. They've come out of that. And because they've come out of that, they no longer participate in those things. And because they don't participate, it makes them stand out to the community around them, to the friends and the family that are still participating in that kind of lifestyle. And those friends and family and those neighbors, they're saying, what is wrong with you? Why don't you join in? This is who you are. And Peter says, no, no, no. This is not who you are. You are elect. And it's why you're exiles. You, you've come out. You're, you're no longer a part of that world. And Peter, Peter writes to encourage them and, and more importantly to, to remind them of this gospel, the gospel of and the gospel's effect upon them and who they are in Jesus Christ. And he starts with, you are elect. God has picked you out. He has chosen you. He has called you. But Peter, Peter doesn't stop with gospel truth here. He goes on throughout his letter to keep them anchored to the realities of God's saving and sustaining grace. He, he wants to tie them. Chapter 1, as we read, is rich in, in gospel truth. We read, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And, and he, he reminds them of this glorious gospel and, and what God has done. And then in, in chapter 2, he continues their gospel lesson. As, as, Peter, as Peter reminds them of the gospel by telling them what their new identity is. Not only are you elect exiles, but as Devin so well taught us last week, he reminds them that they are also living stones. I mean, that is, a, that is a, a, common, a common phrase by Peter. He says that, you know, you have been born again to a living hope. He says the gospel has, has changed you through the living and abiding word of God, and now you are living stones. And so Peter is just telling him, hey, listen, here's the gospel. You're alive. You're no longer dead. You're no longer dead in sin. You are, you are alive. And so he anchors their identity, not in the world that they, they came from, but who they now believe in. That's, that's their identity. They are, and listen, these are mature believers. And, and so it's, 
it, it could be a bit surprising. Why do they have to be reminded of the gospel? Oh, they, they've known the gospel. They've known Christ for so long. Why? But, but they still need to be reminded of how the gospel meets them in every circumstance of their daily life because familiarity with the gospel can create forgetfulness. And when we forget, we can end up like me, sitting in the driveway in panic. How did I get here? How, how did I get here? And so we are, we, are in, we are in need of the gospel's reminder of the power and effect that the gospel has in every circumstance we encounter every day. Peter, Peter writes that the gospel the good news of what God has done for you in Christ through his death and his resurrection. He he wants to remind you that this gospel must be a dominant force in your life every day, every moment. Not just when you show up here on Sunday and we talk about the gospel again. Or when you're in care group and you talk about the gospel. But a dominant force every day. Because you see, the gospel, the gospel doesn't just save, save us. It, it continues to work in us through its transforming power. Peter, Peter tells us in chapter 2 that the gospel didn't just change our lives individually, but corporately. And as again, as Devin taught us so well last week as Living Stones, he said, listen, we're, we're being built, as he taught, into a spiritual house. We're being united together, stone upon stone, as living stones for, for a purpose and for God's glory. But that that uniting, that doesn't just happen because we decide to show up here on a Sunday. That happens because the, the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, transforming us and uniting us together. That's the gospel at work. When you show up here on Sunday morning, that's the gospel working. And it's not just you showing up to hear something, it's showing up to be united to something. We are being built into Christ, the precious cornerstone, chosen by God, although rejected by men. Listen, the gospel's work is ongoing in our lives as we see here. And so, so Peter, Peter in his writing reinforces the hope we've been given in, in the gospel by by its working, and he's, he's doing it by expanding further our gospel identity beyond just being elect exiles. Every, every label that Peter gives us in this book, elect exiles, living stones, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession, a chosen race. All those are labels that declare what the gospel has done for us. So Peter reinforces the hope we have in the gospel's working by, by expanding further our gospel identity. 
And so in two, in seven through 10, he uses rich Old Testament metaphors to broaden our understanding of our identity as a way of strengthening us in the face of opposition and hostility and persecution. And I've realized sitting here this morning, for the majority of you, you do not face much in the way of, of hostility or persecution or opposition. Most, most of what you face is what you hear on the news or read somewhere online or in a magazine about the way Christians are being treated, but, but it's, it's not far away. I, I've, I've read already in the past week three articles about the kind of opposition that people are experiencing simply because they stand up for Christ. A realtor lost her job because she had a Bible verse attached to her website. So the real estate commission in that area kicked her out. A Finnish politician, excuse me, a Finnish politician, a believer, quotes a passage on her website about God and his holiness. And she is charged with a hate crime. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. And, and this book is written, this book is written to prepare us to to anchor us to what is the only thing that we can be anchored to when this opposition comes, and that is Jesus Christ. Listen, if we just knew we were elect, that would be enough. But, but even more helpful is to know the great identity we have and the great hope we have in Christ. And so these, these verses here in, in 7 through 10 of chapter 2, they, they bring to an end a preparatory section that began in chapter 1, just displaying the glory of the gospel and, and how important it is for our daily lives so that as, as Peter is writing, he is he's getting ready to engage them and address them on how they are going to engage the culture, starting in verse 11 of chapter 2 and onward. Saying, look, there is much before you. And, and as you read, you're, you're going to face opposition. You're going to face those who malign you. You're going to face rulers who are, or, are immoral. You're going to face those who do not, who do not want you in any fashion to display the faith you have in Christ. They want to silence you. So he, he closes this section as he prepares to help them learn how to engage by making sure all of them are clear about their identity as believers, who they are, and what their identity means to them going forward. So the main idea this morning simply is this, being secure in our gospel identity empowers us to be the people of God in a hostile culture. Being secure in our gospel identity empowers us to be the people of God in a hostile culture. 
And as Christians, like these ancient readers in First Peter, listen, we no longer identify with, with the world, or at least we shouldn't identify with the world that we live in. Our identity is now in Christ. We are now the people of God. And it is this identity that is to strengthen us and comfort us and anchor us when we face opposition. And as the people of God, united together. We are objects of his affection. We are objects of his mercy. We've been set, up, set apart to no longer live lives on our own terms, but to live lives that, that bring honor and glory and praise to God, which is where Peter is going in this. And he tells us there is so much more we have in Christ. And so he, these coming verses, he, he puts these labels out for us of who we are So that when, when life is dark, when life is filled with hostility and persecution and suffering and angst and weariness and at times hopelessness, we remember who we are. Peter tells us we have so much more and so much more in Christ. And because of the gospel, the first one, main point is we are honored for our faith. Look at verse 7. Now, Peter is referring back to the previous verses, not only the previous verses that Devin spoke on last week, but all the way back to chapter 1. He says in verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. The honor is for you who believe. What honor is he talking about? Well, if you look at chapter 1, verse 7, uh, in verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while it is necessary you've been grieved by various trials. Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that praise and glory and honor is, is praise and glory and honor for these believers whose faith is being tested and has been tested and has proven to be more precious than gold because it has stood the test. Peter looks back at what was spoken there and through faith our our. our, our our lives are proven genuine by the way we respond to these fiery trials and tests. And, and that God, God wants to honor. God will honor you. God, God will praise you. And God will, will bring glory to you. He will glorify you. Now, throughout the New Testament, that, that's a recurrent theme. If, in 1 Peter 4, 13, Peter, Peter writes in verse 13, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And in, in Romans 8, it says that if we, we share in Christ's sufferings, we share in his glory. Peter's written here that, that we will be receiving glory. Now, that just, that just seems for us who are well taught, understanding humility and pride, understanding that the only one who deserves glory is God, and then to read about God saying he will glorify us. That's that just, that, that's dissonance right there. It, it's tension. It's like, wait a minute. It's, but God does. God honors our faith. God honors 
our belief. God, God honors our faithfulness. God honors our standing firm. And he gets glory for it all at the end because it's by his grace and his strength and his spirit working in us that allows us to stand firm and to express faith. This is a stunning reversal of what awaited us as believers prior to our salvation. What awaited us as believers prior to our salvation was not glory, was not honor, was not praise, but judgment. And Peter writes here, listen, our judgment's been averted. Our judgment's been averted. And rather than judgment, what awaits us, Peter so compellingly describes, is what we see in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's keeping this inheritance for you. We have a living hope. We have an inheritance. We have the comfort of God in our sufferings and we have favor when our faith is proven in trials, a favor that results in God honoring us with praise and glory. What an amazing concept that is, that we will share God's glory. Because brothers and sisters, in the quiet moments when we're alone with ourselves, we know at times we are. There's nothing glorious about us. We are not deserving of sharing Christ's glory. And yet, he freely gives it to us when we faithfully follow him and we suffer for doing so. And this is the gospel's great promise. Rather than judgment, we receive honor and glory. Now, contrast this with the judgment that will be given to those who do not believe. Look at, look at verse 7, the, the second part. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In verse 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Rather than their judgment being averted by Christ bearing their punishment, these unbelievers will bear the full weight of their own sin. In, in verse 6 of chapter 2, just previously what Devin read last week, he says, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, but the opposite of this is, is for those who do not believe, they will be put to shame. They will experience the shame of refusing Christ, of rejecting Christ. Now, we are those who will never be put to shame. If we've believed and we are joined to Christ, we'll never face the shame and terror of, of judgment on that final day. We are, we are those who will be honored, who who. Will, will receive God's praise. But, but those who are unbelievers, they, they will not be honored. They will not receive praise. In fact, they, they're offended with God. They're offended with Christ. He causes them to stumble and he causes them to be offended. 
And Jesus himself said in Matthew 21, he said, because they did not believe in him, he said, and the one who falls on this stone, this cornerstone, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And then he goes on to say this, and when it falls on anyone, when this cornerstone, the judgment of Christ falls on anyone, it will crush him. That's the result of judgment. And in our day and in our age, just as in Peter's time, there are, there, there are great opponents to Jesus Christ who are vocal. And we hear the same among our neighbors and our family members and our friends when we talk to them about following Christ, being disciples of Christ, we, we get maligned. These people, who is this Jesus who thinks he can run my life? Who is he to tell me how to live? Who is he to tell me I should submit to, my, to his authority? It's my body, it's my life, it's my choice, and I'll do whatever I please. Who are these bigoted idiotic believers who try to tell me how to live. They stumble and they're offended by Christ. They're offended by you because you're a follower of Christ. And the consequence of their rejecting Jesus, the cornerstone, is judgment. And being crushed by him and ultimately being terrified by him. Hebrews 10.31, <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So Peter makes this great contrast. Listen, here's what the gospel has done. You will be honored. And here's what the gospel does if it's rejected. You will be judged. That's the first. It's the first thing that the gospel does is it gives us honor. Secondly, we are given an exalted identity. Although Peter uses many different metaphors to describe our life in Christ, listen, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession, living stones, elect exiles, even though he uses all those things, listen, we only have one identity in Christ. Christian. Christian. We are Christians. Now, Peter uses many ways to describe this in, in verse 9. He says, but you. Now, I mean, in verse 8, he talks about these people. Uh, they were destined to live this way. <clears throat> and we get into the, the, the difficulty, the tension of what is true in Scripture, both the sovereignty of God and salvation and the responsibility of men. We see that, that God in Romans 9, that there were those who were, who were destined to ignoble purposes and as Jacob was destined to noble purposes. And, and we are not to argue with God. Paul writes, who are you, O man, to argue with God and his choices? But, but Peter goes on to say, look, here's what I want you to understand in verse 9. Listen, the, these, these folks, they, they were destined to judgment. This is what they chose. This is what they're responsible for. They've rejected Christ. But you, 
But you, you are a chosen race. So, so Peter just, again, he, he magnifies God's sovereignty and salvation. He, he reminds them they are elect. He says, you are a chosen race. God declared that he had a people who were different, a people he had chosen. That, that was the nation of Israel at first. They, they were a chosen race. They, they were God's people. But they rejected him again and again and again. He told them, you will, you will bear my name. You will live for my glory. And they rejected him again and again. We do not want what you offer, they tell God. And yet he promised them that they would be a people he would love, protect, and care for. And, and they kept rejecting him. But they weren't the permanent solution. Because Christ comes. Christ comes. And it isn't just the bloodline of Abraham, the nation of Israel. It is all who call upon the name of the Lord who are a chosen race. Those who have been saved by grace are a chosen race. Peter is looking back at Isaiah 43, verse 10, when he is quoting this, this passage. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. He goes on to speak about who he is as their God and who they are as his people. They are a chosen race. And then Peter goes on to say, you're a royal priesthood, the temple of the new covenant. It's a spiritual temple, as Devin taught last week. Those who are its priests are not from the tribe of Levi, bringing in physical, physical goats and lambs and bulls and, and shedding their blood and hearing their, their bleeding voices as they are they're being slaughtered. No, no, no. The, these, these men and women who have come to faith in Christ, these men and women who have been changed by the gospel are a royal priesthood. That is you. That is, that is you. Watch enough Hallmark movies and there are always at least one every week about some, some normal common guy falling in love with some royal princess. And they, they describe royalty and they, they show, and it's always a castle in Romania, this beautiful castle with, with gorgeous sight lines and, and, you know, and on a snowy winter one and, and, and Christmas and, and, and royalty just gets expanded. My friends, that royalty on Hallmark has, has just it's, just, it's just a smidgen of what is happening here. You are a royal priesthood. Our approach to God, it's not physical like the Old Testament priests. Our approach is through worship, 
in spirit and in truth. That we can come to his throne of grace directly to find mercy and help and grace in time of need. And then he goes on to say, you are a holy nation. He's referring back to, to Exodus 19, that what we studied uh, about a year ago. In Exodus 19, verse 6, Peter is referring to, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul writes, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation chosen before the foundation of the world. He, he just falls back on our election, our salvation. And, and, and these, these words, all of these descriptions, brothers and sisters, they're meant for you. They're meant for you to take from this room today to think about, okay, who am I in Christ? Who am I as a Christian? I am, I am elect. I am living. I am a living stone. I am, I am a chosen race. It's not just me alone. I am a chosen race. I am gathered with the people of God. That's who I am. I am a royal priesthood. I, I, I can offer, as Romans 12 talks about, spiritual sacrifices. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. That's my priestly responsibility. Not to be conformed to this world any longer, as Paul writes in Romans 12, but to offer, to offer myself as a living sacrifice. Not something being put to death, but as a living sacrifice. I'm alive. And, and I am a holy nation. We represent the perfection and purity of Christ. And then he finishes with a people for his own possession. A people for his own possession. Back again, 19, uh, Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. All of these Old Testament descriptions of the people of God now apply to us. All of these describe how we fellowship with God, our relationship with God that was destroyed in the garden as Adam and Eve rejected God's plan for, their, for, for themselves and, and took on their own plan. Our, our fellowship with God was shattered at that moment. Our relationship with God was destroyed. And now the only way we could have had any relationship with God was through the sacrifice of blood and, and bulls and goats. And that was only temporary. And now we have access to God through the blood of Christ. Permanent access. These new identities Peter describes that God has given to us and this access we have to God that, that we do not deserve would have never happened without the gospel. So, so Peter, Peter, 
Peter's addressing their life situation. He's not giving them a lesson in apologetics on how to talk back to their opponents. He's just taking them back to what is most true and most glorious, the gospel. What does the gospel mean to you right now? What does the gospel mean to you when you go home today? What does the gospel mean to you at the picnic? What does the gospel mean to you when you get up in the morning and drive to work? What does the gospel mean to you when you are working with your employer or employees? What does the gospel mean to you when you're parenting your children? What does the gospel mean to you when you are spending time with your spouse? What does the gospel mean to you when you are paying your bills? What does the gospel mean to you when you are in conflict with a friend? What does the gospel mean to you when your father is in the hospital? What does the gospel mean to you when your mother has died? What does the gospel mean to you? That's what Peter is writing here. And if you become too familiar with it and you forget, you'll end up in the driveway not even knowing how you got there with panic in your heart. What do I do? The third thing that the gospel does for us is it gives us an eternal purpose. And, and here is the climax of the passage. Part, part two of verse nine. You, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter declares who we are and what we are to do. We have a purpose and we have a mission. And again, he cites Isaiah 43, verse 21. He says, the people who I formed for myself that, I, that they might declare my praise. That, that is what he is talking about. We live and we breathe and we have our being and we do it by seeking to proclaim the excellencies of him, Jesus Christ, who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, even from the darkness of a hostile world. We we don't hide from the world. We tell them about Jesus Christ. <clears throat> One of my favorite all-time TV shows is, and most of them are on BBC. I love hearing the Brits speak, uh, but they are well-written. And one of them is called Foil's War. It's about World, it's about, it's about uh, a detective in World War II in the town of Hastings on the English coast. And, and it's, it's just very, very, very well done. All of the scenery is, I mean, they, they found all the World War II stuff. They've made what they needed. It just, you're back in World War II. And one of the, one of the shows I was watching, there's a, there's a time, because it is World War II and the Blitzkrieg is going on in London. And so you see people huddled inside a, a bomb shelter, and they're, they're down, and, and, and you know, you hear the bombs going off, and, and dust comes down, and, and they're just huddled there, and they are frightened, and they can't go out, and that's where they spend the majority of their lives, fearful of the enemy's attack. Listen, listen, we do not hide, and we do not huddle. And we are not to be fearful of the enemy's attacks. We are, as those who are Tr transformed by the gospel, we are 
called out of darkness into his marvelous light to proclaim the excellencies of him. That's our purpose. And that's our mission. Listen, those who reject Jesus Christ, they live in darkness. Listen, if, you, if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, if you're not a follower, if you do not believe in his saving work, if you, if you just, I, I, I know him, I know who he is, but I, I, I'm, I'm not a follower of him, I'm not, I'm not obedient to him, I don't live for him, if that's who you are, listen, you live in darkness. And you need the gospel. You, you live in darkness. You're, you're deceived into, into believing you're enlightened. I can, I can tell you. I was the same way. And, and, and your, wisdom, your wisdom is foolishness. Because my wisdom, I, what I thought I was so wise was foolishness. I, I lived in darkness thinking that what I was tasting was, was light. But it was, it was just tragic. And, and the eternity before me, before I came to faith in Christ, before I came out of darkness into his marvelous light, my, my eternity before me was tragic because it was judgment. It was the judgment of God that awaited me. I was without hope and I was without God. And if you're not a follower of Christ, that, that is you. You chase, you chase after all the bright lights of the culture. Things that, that, are, that are bright. Oh, look, there's one over there and there's one over there. When my, when my daughter Carrie, who's 28 now, but when she was about four or five, we lived in Atlanta, Georgia, and, and all during the summer, you would just, you'd see fireflies everywhere. And, and Carrie was just learning how to catch fireflies. Her older brother and older sister would catch them and hold them in their hand and, and you'd see them glow. And, and Carrie, Carrie was so excited. She wanted to catch her first firefly. She goes running around the yard and, and finally she gets the one. She goes like, that, she's got it. <laughs> and she looks at it and there's no light and tears just fall down her hand just yellow junk spread all over her hand if you're not a follower of Christ that's what you're doing and eventually that light proves meaningless that's a description of those who do not believe now for those of us who do believe who have been called out of darkness into Christ's marvelous light into the glorious light we're no longer blinded by the false advertisements of this world we can see we can see the light of the world and, and we can see Jesus as our Savior and our Lord and our King. He is the light of the world. And where is that light most clearly seen? Let me tell you where it's most clearly seen. It's seen here in God's inerrant, infallible, authoritative, all-sufficient word. It's seen right here as the people of God are gathered together. Right here in his word and in his church. And where do we proclaim these excellencies? Well, we proclaim them here through our, our singing 
as we worship God through our listening, as we hear the word of God preached, through our giving, as we sacrifice for the good of the kingdom, through our fellowship, as we care for one another, through our service, as we sacrifice our time and energy. We see God's name and glory and marvelous beauty proclaimed right here among the people of God. We proclaim his excellencies through our worship. But that's not all. We proclaim his excellencies by our witness. We proclaim God's excellencies not just in here, my friends, but out there. Even even in the face of opposition. Because our, our fear is not of what they will do. No, no. We don't live for their approval. We live for God's approval. So, as verse 7 says, so the honor is for you who believe. Even, even when it's, I mean, oftentimes the only time we share the gospel is when we sense people are willing to listen. Well, yeah, they didn't give me, any, they didn't give me an open door. They didn't, they didn't make it easy for me. So What? If we're following in the footsteps of Christ, we share the gospel. When we have an opportunity, we do not duck. And we do not hide. And we do not huddle. Now Peter finishes in verse 10. And he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter finishes with a return to the gospel, and I'm so, I'm so glad he did. We must never forget God's mercy upon our lives. The, this verse interestingly refers back to the book of Ho- Hosea. Hosea, God gives Hosea uh, an unfaithful wife who had multiple children because of her adultery outside of her marriage. God prophesies through Hosea that his wife Gomer and her illegitimate children represent Israel's unfaithfulness. And so he names these children. He, God names these two children that, that Gomer, the adulterous wife, had. He calls these two children, not my people, that's the name of one, and no mercy is the name of others. Now the only people I know who name children like that are, are celebrities. Oh, this is my daughter, Apple. I, yeah. Um, and and, and, and here, here you've got no mercy and not my people. And Peter is referencing this, this pro- prophetic book as a way to remind these people that prior to believing in Christ, they were not God's people. And they had not received mercy. They were orphans. They were, they were like Israel. They were unfaithful. And now in Christ, who has, they've come into his marvelous light. They are, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy because you have been brought out of darkness into his marvelous light. Father, thank you that you have done this for us. Thank you that you have brought us out of darkness into your marvelous light, that we are now the people of God. Lord, may we go today as the people of God declaring and proclaiming your excellencies for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.